We are continuing in a sermon series. Like I said, my name is Scott Gill, and I'm one of the associate pastors here, along with Reagan. We get to co-pastor this worship community we call Thrive. Uh, hello to those of you joining us online. We are continuing in our sermon series called Fixer Upper, where we're talking about essentially each week we're addressing a, di- a different sort of uh, brokenness and character uh, sins uh, that, that we know uh, can weigh us down, that we know are not allowing us to live into our fullest potential. And so how can we um, allow God to fix us up? And what's the, the better alternative that God has for us? So uh, to get us started today, I want to tell a story about when I was in, uh, I want to say fourth or fifth grade. I'm not precisely sure when. Um, but uh, I was at Meadow Creek Elementary in, in Bedford, Texas. And uh, as you've heard me say before, I was a child who was not athletically inclined, right? Um, so recess uh, was like either option A, uh, get my 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 butt handed to me at whatever sport or game was being played that day and be invariably be picked last which is super good for self-esteem or hang out with my nerdy friends underneath the the playground uh like underneath it because it's texas and it's hot right and so it's like the little shade we could find we would just hang out under there uh we would like play pokemon i mean i'm wear, really wearing my nerd badge today right that's what we would do with our with our recess until they banned game boys and um and so one day we were hanging out underneath the playground, and uh, one of my friends was just fiddling around, messing with the wood chips, and we found this, uh, if you dug down about like six inches or so, there was this netting, right? And, uh, and, and so then the next day, we came back to that same spot, because we were curious what was underneath. We brought some scissors, cut through the netting, right? And, uh, and there's all this red clay, like kind of moist, which is a horrible word, um, but it's just descriptive. And it was, it was the kind of clay that like you could mold. It was almost like the clay you get in art class, right? Like it was really good moldable clay. And we were like, jackpot. And what we did is we sold it to all of our friends, right? Uh, because no one else knew that it was down there except for us. And we live in America, capitalism. And so um, we started bagging up little bags of clay, and we would sell the baggies for like a dollar a pop. And if you were a cool kid at Meadow Creek, you had to have your bag of red clay from the mysterious unknown source that none of us would reveal, right? And that is how my elementary school had to ban clay from classroom desks when I was growing up. Uh, Not before we each made like a good 20, 30 bucks a pop, right? That was my first experience of earning like beyond like allowance, but like earning my own money. And mm, that tasted good, right? Do you remember being a kid, like whether it was the lemonade stand or whatever it is that you did to earn a a buck and man, those first few dollars felt really good, and and that that little clay scheme that we had running was really fun until that dried up on us. Um, those darn regulators at the elementary school, right? Um, so today we're going to talk about greed, because there's something about having money or power or influence or or even just stuff um, that when you have it, oh, it feels really good, it can be really enticing. And, and greed's a little bit different than some of the things we've talked about before, it, and we'll talk about that today. It's not like envy. It's not wishing you had something. It's actually having it and not being so sure you want to let it go. And there's something about greed that is just so intoxicating, and yet it can be such a roadblock in our life and in our faith. So today I want us to, to wrestle with this one big question. How does greed affect our relationship with God? How do, not does it, but how does it? How does greed affect our relationship with God? There's a lot of scriptures we could turn to uh, in the Bible that talk about greed, um, but we're going to turn our attention today to Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17 through 27. This is the story 
of the rich young ruler, and then Jesus teaches about a camel going through the eye of a needle. And I'm willing to bet you may have heard this scripture before if you've come to church before, if you've listened to a handful of sermons. I'm really sure you've heard this sermon if you've gone to a church during a stewardship campaign, or this scripture, rather. Um, But this is not a Sunday where we're going to ask you to give to a campaign. This isn't a Sunday where we're asking anything of you other than to be faithful with God. And so we're going to talk about uh, this passage just in the light of our faith, in the light of our daily walk with God. And I hope if you're like me, this text surprises you today, because uh, I I think sometimes we read this and we see it at the surface level, but there's a lot more going on here than what meets the eye. So um, let's talk about greed, let's talk about our faith, and, um, and it should be a good day. Before we read scripture this morning, let's say a word of prayer. Uh, if this is your first Sunday with us, we pray simply because we believe the Holy Spirit can bring the text alive for us today and allow it to impact us in, in, in new and holy ways. So let's pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for a space that we can come and cool off uh, during the hot summer weeks. We remember those and we lift up those in prayer. We ask you to put us to work for those who don't have uh, an air-conditioned room to call home this morning. God, we continue um, to pray for, as we did last week, we continue to pray for and ask you to put us to work for um, your children everywhere, wherever they are suffering, especially those who find themselves at the border. God, we give you thanks for uh, this week. Uh, We remember and give you thanks for the freedoms that we get to enjoy. And we ask that you'd make us people who uplift freedom and justice for all people. And God, as we approach your scripture this morning, your words that come to us from St. Mark, would you open up our hearts, our eyes and our ears, allow us to hear and to see what it is that you would have for us this morning. Allow my words to be yours and not my own. Keep us walking humbly in, the, in your will. All this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So it says this, as Jesus continued down the road, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, this is a really high accolade, Good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus replied, why do you call me good? No one is good except the one God. You know the commandments, Jesus said. Don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't cheat, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he responded, I've kept all of these things since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him carefully and loved him. Then he said to him, you are lacking one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give that money to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But the man was dismayed at this statement and went away saddened because he had many possessions. Looking around, Jesus said to his disciples, it will be very hard for the wealthy to enter God's kingdom. His words startled the disciples, so Jesus told them again, children, it's difficult to enter God's kingdom. It's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. They were shocked even more and said to each other, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them carefully and said, it's impossible with human beings, but not with God. 
all things are possible for God. The word of God for the people of God. We say thanks be to God. Amen. So I want to walk through a few pieces of this text that jumped out to me this week that I found interesting and, and applicable, uh, not only for me, but I think for our conversation in this series. Uh, the first thing I notice is when it talks about in, in the middle of that passage, when the, the rich young ruler, he's given this challenge by Jesus, and, and he's told, uh, okay, you've kept all these commandments, you're a good boy, you've been a good boy, uh, now if you want to be perfect, right, if you want to be perfect, you've got to sell everything off and give all that money to the poor. And it says that he, he, he walked away sad because he had many possessions. Um, anybody a big fan of the Bourne movies? The Bourne identity? Yeah, old, yeah, man. Like, so my high school experience, I feel like my dad's in the room. He could correct me. But I feel like we may have watched that trilogy about 87 times when I was in high school. My dad and I would hang out. And when my mom was working nights or something uh, at, at Parkland, we would, uh, we would put on Bourne and we would eat fried gizzards uh, with gravy. Yeah. Any other fried gizzards fans? A lot less hands just went up in the air. A lot less hands. Although the Venn diagram is pretty complete there. If you're a Born fan, Gizzard fan, it's like the same people. So that's good. Um, we can hang out. We can like make a thing of it. We'll start a small group. So um, in the first Born movie, there's this great scene where he's uh, initially on the run. And he's, at a, he's, at the, he's in Switzerland. And he's at the U.S. consulate trying to evade uh, the authorities. And he runs across this German woman named Marie. And he's trying to convince her. Uh, to drive him to Paris, right? And, um, and he says, hey, if you drive me to Paris, I'll pay you $20,000, 10000 10, now and 10000 when we get there. And she says no. And then he throws a wad of $10,000 at her, and she catches it. He says, drive me there. And she says no. He, goes, he says, fine, then give me my money back. And she looks at the money. She looks at him. And, like, she knows this is a bad scenario, right? But she looks at the money, and she looks at him, and she says, okay, get in. And... and, and the reason I bring that scene up right now is I want to illustrate the difference between envy and greed. Because I think a lot of us are really good when it comes to envy. We're pretty content with what we have, right? I don't feel like, maybe you say, I don't feel like I, I, I look at what other people have and I wish I had that. But that's not the same thing as greed. Greed is when you have it in your hands and you're really unwilling to let it go. These are different things. Greed is being handed the $10,000. At first saying, no, I don't want to take you. Then handing, being handed the $10,000, then being, said, being told, okay, now hand it back. And going, okay, get in, right? That's a different ballgame. That's what we're talking about today. And in some ways, I think greed is a lot harder mountain to, to climb than just envy. Because envy is saying, I, I'm good with where I am. And a lot of us could say that. But being told to lose what you have, being told to give away what you have, to give back what you have, to sell off what you have, that is a different kind of ball game. Greed is rooted in a fear of loss. That's the first thing I notice. The rich young ruler is terrified of losing what he has. And we'll talk more about why I think he's terrified in a second. But let's start with this. Greed is rooted in a fear of loss. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of times that I'm really scared of losing. Right? I was scared of losing in elementary school, so I didn't play kickball. Right? Sat under the playground. All of us today, I think a lot of us are scared of losing our, our health or our wealth or our conveniences, or our comforts. 
Greed is rooted in a fear of loss. It's this mentality that says, maybe if I have enough, if I, if I gain enough things, if I make my life about amassing enough money and enough power and amount, enough stuff, then I'll be, I'll be happy or I'll be secure or, or maybe even I'll be saved. We'll talk about that in a sec too. Maybe if I get enough of this stuff and I hold it close enough to me, I'll feel happy, I'll feel secure. The rich young ruler is terrified of losing that. Because even though he's, he's a good man, I mean, he's following every letter of the law, he's still not whole because his hands are clenched tight around his stuff. And I want us to notice, though, that that, that line of thinking, that, that way of living, of constantly amassing and amassing and amassing. I want more money and more power and more stuff. Maybe I'll feel happy. Maybe I'll feel secure. Does it lead to that for the rich young ruler? It doesn't say he walked away thinking, that guy was crazy. My life's awesome. It doesn't say that. He walked away sad. Because I think there was something in him that knew he was missing out on the opportunity of a lifetime because he couldn't let this stuff go. I want us to hear clearly, if you hear nothing else this morning, if you think that your life is about making as much money and getting as much power as you possibly can, this is going to sound brutal and morbid. You're going to die one day and you can't take it with you. <laughs> like, I hate to be that stark to start off a sermon, but I think sometimes we have to be woken up with sort of a jolt. And this week I had to like look this in the eye and realize that if I thought I was staking my eternity on making as much money and getting as much stuff and being as comfortable as possible and having as much power as possible, guess what? That all ends one day for everybody full stop. And you can't take it with you. We walk away sad because we'll have missed out on the things that really matter. No, let's pick it up a little bit, okay? Now that'll let us sit there for a second. Y'all are like, holy cow, is it time for brunch yet? <laughs> so there's times that I read scriptures over, like this is a scripture I've read, I can't even tell you how many dozens of times I've read this, the, the camel walking through the eye of a needle, but there's something that leaps out to me every time I read a piece of, of scripture, and that's why I pray over, pray over scripture before we read it, because I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to just make things just kind of jump out at you. And one of those things was when Jesus, it says, Jesus looked at the rich young ruler before he even issued the challenge. It said he looked at him carefully, and did you catch what it said? It said Jesus looked at him and what? He loved him. Mm. That hit me this week. Because see, what I just shared was really hard to share. Right? That's a hard truth to share, especially with a room full of people that you don't know how are going to receive it. It's hard to share difficult truths with people that you know and that you're looking right in the eye. It's hard to share challenging, difficult truths with people. And Jesus does this out of love. See, I, I was struck by the fact that Jesus doesn't look at this rich young ruler with disdain. He didn't look at him with frustration. He didn't look at him with annoyance or anger. And he could have felt those things. I mean, here's this young, let's be honest, this kind of arrogant kid coming up to the Savior of the world saying, I've been pretty daggum perfect. Do I get into heaven? And Jesus could have looked at him like, you don't get it at all. You don't get it at all. You think that I'm here 
to, to allow you to make it into heaven just because you follow a, a little rule list that you think is where, what, what matters in this world. Meanwhile, your community is suffering. You've got, you probably walked past a million poor people just to talk to me this morning, and, and, and you think that you get to make it into heaven, but it doesn't say any of that. It's a good thing I'm not Jesus. It's a good thing you're not Jesus. He says, Jesus looked at this young man with love, and he was going to tell him something he knew was going to be really hard to swallow. There are times in my life when I get mad at God because I feel like God's asking me to do something that's difficult or challenging. I think, God, you know, why do you hate me? (laughs) Why are you making my life so hard? Why are you putting this this knot in my gut where I know that I'm supposed to do something and I don't want to do it? Oh, this is so frustrating. Are you just out to make my life miserable, God? And it's a helpful reminder to see that Jesus issues these challenges, that God issues these challenges not out of annoyance or frustration or anger with us, but out of love for us. Because Jesus sees who the rich young ruler could become. He sees the potential in this young man. This young man's got willpower for days. I mean, he's actually lived up to this impossibly high bar set by his community. But Jesus sees that that's just scratching the surface. And he's trying to open him up to some more potential, and so he has to offer him this difficult challenge out of love. In a fixer-upper sense, I think God sees us with that same sense of potential, kind of like Chip and Joanna see a house, right? They walk into the most butt-ugly house in the world, and they're like, look at this place. Look at the potential here. I'm like, burn it down. That is the ugliest house I've ever seen. And by the end, I'm like, look at that house. Can I move in there? How much is it? Never mind. Wow. Isn't it amazing, too, the budgets these folks have on these shows? Like, what do you do for a living? I'm a butterfly collector. My budget's a million dollars. What? How does that work? Um, But I think God looks at us, and he sees that same kind of potential. But, you know, for Chip and Joanna to get the house to where it needs to be, that takes hard work. And you got to rip some stuff out. you got to take it down to the bones sometimes. That's not easy. But they do it out of love. It would be a lot easier just to burn the house down and build a new one, right? But they do it out of love for the house. I think God does the same thing. So let's keep moving now to the, to the, the story sort of comes in two parts. There's the little scene with Jesus and the rich man. And then there's this scene about the camel and the eye of the needle bit. And, and this is one of those passages I feel like gets kind of mishandled sometimes. So let's unpack that because you might have heard that and you've been like, so is Jesus saying that God hates rich people? Not entirely. That's not what he's saying. Um, so just that's not that's not the point. Like I've I've heard some some people preach this scripture and be like, and that's why Jesus hates rich people. And if you have any amount of money, you're going to hell. Like here's newsflash: all of us in this room right now are rich. John Wesley said that if you have more uh, food than you need just for that single day, you're a rich person. So be careful when you start throwing stones in glass houses, Americans. Okay, so. Um, Is this scripture about Jesus hating rich people? No. What we have to understand when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to fit through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to make it into heaven. He's addressing a community with a very specific context. Um, The the Jewish religious community at that time, the community that the the disciples were living in, that he was preaching in, had become something of a plutocracy. Which is a big fancy word that means that a small group of wealthy people basically got to be in control. And and, and it even filtered into the theology a little bit. Next week we're going to talk about this scene of Jesus turning tables over in a temple. And we're going to unpack what that means. Uh, But the reason he does that is because there's this theology that says if you've got the means to buy sacrifices to pay off your sins, then you're good. Right? 
And so uh, your, your salvation was in a weird way connected to your bank account. And so that meant the wealthier you were, then therefore you could carry more clout in the religious community because hey, I can buy fatted calves for days to pay off my sins. See, that's a nice place to be. It's a lot harder to be someone who could barely afford anything. Then you really had to watch those rules. And so when Jesus is telling, um, and, and not only that, there was also a theology in the Jewish community of you do good, you get good, you do bad, you get bad, right? And, and you take this to an extreme and you get the prosperity gospel. Have we ever heard of that before where it says, if I'm really faithful to God and I live my life the right way and I do what God wants me to do, then I'll be showered with riches, right? Now, if you don't know, we don't believe that here at Lover's Lane. And, and I don't believe that because I've seen it proven untrue and untrue over and over and over again. But this was a prevailing thought at the time. And so when Jesus says to, these, to this group of people, these disciples and this crowd, you know, it's easier for a camel to fit in the eye of a needle than for a rich person to make it into heaven. He's not attacking rich people. He's saying the way you think this works is wrong. Your understanding of how this whole thing works is wrong. You don't get blessed with finances just because you live a good life. My goodness, how many people do you know that, are, that have a hard time making ends meet that are the kindest, gentlest, most concerned, loving people in the world? Do you really believe that, that God blesses those who are faithful with riches? I think that Ecclesiastes would have a thing to say about that. I've seen princes in chains and slaves on horseback. Jesus is addressing this mentality that it seeped into the faith that said, your money, your wallet, your bank account, that's what's going to save you in the end. Maybe the rich young ruler was really worried. Because if he sold everything off that he owned and he gave all of his money away to the poor, then he wouldn't have any money to buy any sacrifices to save himself one day. Maybe he wasn't quite as perfect as he let on. I don't know. But Jesus is challenging them to consider that maybe that what they thought, this plutocracy, this meritocracy, that those who work hard, those who pay enough get into heaven, maybe that's not the way it works after all. And then, of course, their question is, then who gets in? Because if those people don't get in, I got no shot, right? That'd be like if, if, if someone told you right now, you know, I, I died and I went to heaven and I came back, and who'd you see up there? Well, I didn't see Mother Teresa. What? She didn't make it? No. It was a small room. You're like, oh, that does not bode well for me, right? That's basically what Jesus is saying to them. When we believe that our stuff or our money or our power is the source of our salvation, then this greediness becomes inevitable. I think the rich young man is simply a product of his context. I think he was raised to believe that if he gave this stuff away, he was putting himself on a chopping block that made him very uncomfortable. When we treat money and power and stuff as our salvation, greediness is inevitable. If you think this stuff is going to save you, then of course you're going to hold on to it as tight as you can. You'd be a fool not to. And so we have to reorient our thinking. This brings us to the last phrase that Jesus says. He says, you know, they said, who in the world can make it in then, Jesus? And he says, well, it is impossible for human beings. It's impossible. It is like fitting a camel through the eye of a needle, right? And you could interpret that to mean a little passageway in the city that they may have been referring to or a physical eye of a needle. Either way, that camel ain't getting in, right? It is impossible for human beings. 
If, if our salvation was built upon our power, our influence, our wealth, our actions, our merits, it'd be a very small room. But he says, but with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. And then we took that phrase and we put it on motivational posters with cats. Right? It's the most misused phrase. <laughs> that right up there with, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? That's Paul talking about how he can be martyred for his faith, not so that he can go out and get the big sales pitch, right? You can do all things with Christ who strengthens me. Through God, all things are possible is not about winning the basketball game. It is not about landing the promotion. It is about eternal life, right? It is the biggest possible statement ever. Don't reduce it down. Don't reduce it down. Through God, all things are possible. Jesus is saying that we ourselves will never be able to afford the cost of entrance into the kingdom of God. None of us will. But what they don't know at the time is that he is there to make that entrance possible. God is there to make that entrance possible. God's grace alone allows us to enter in. Nothing we do, nothing we earn, nothing we hold on to except for God. And so what does this do for us in greed? Where does this leave us with greed? First thing I want us to know is that greed is not going to save us. Greed is not going to save us. And we live in a culture that values greed a whole, whole lot. There are, if you don't think that you're getting bombarded with messages saying greed is going to save you, just open your eyes. North Dallas, open your eyes. Greed is not going to save us. It can buy us stuff. It can't buy us salvation. And in fact, it'll lead us to a lot more sadness in the end than hope. But generosity Generosity, and I'm not talking about uh, giving 10%. I'm not talking about uh, handing money on the street corner. I'm not talking about uh, doing the at the checkout line, the dollar for whatever charity. I'm talking like Jesus, radical self-giving, pouring out all that you are, selling everything, giving it all to the poor. That's a radical target to aim at, right? And I know that I don't think any of us are going to walk out these doors today and sell everything we own and give it to the poor. And I don't think that we should feel guilty for that or shamed for that. I think what we should see is Jesus is saying that's the target. If we're talking about what the kingdom of God looks like, if we're talking about what being perfected in love looks like, it's a generosity that is so far beyond what you think it is. It is emptying yourself in the same way that I'm about to empty myself on this altar, he says. Pouring your love out tangibly, caring for the needs of those around you. It's living in an economy, not of scarcity, but of abundance. Knowing that as I give freely of myself, I trust that God will care for me, that others will care for me, that the community will care for me. I trust that there is enough for everyone. It's a total reorientation of the way that we see the world. It means that we give way more than we think we want to. We don't even give until it hurts. We give until it feels good. I like that phrase a lot. Because there's plenty of times that I've given and it's hurt. But I like it when it feels good. And you know what's funny is the more I give, I've never given in a, in a position of, of being afraid. I've never given from that kind of a position where I'm like, should I, shouldn't I? And I went ahead and did it. And I've never looked back and gone, ooh, I should not have given to that charity. Shouldn't have done it. Shouldn't have done it. That should have been my money, not those kids. Right? 
Has that ever happened to you? It's never happened to me. I've never looked back and been like, I should have been less charitable. I should have been less generous. My life would be so much better if I wasn't so generous, right? It's never happened. It's so silly, but it's never happened. We are not called to only rid ourselves of riches, but to do so for the betterment of others, right? It's not enough just to sell everything off, but go out and make a way for those in need. So friends, generosity, leaving greed behind, becoming a generous person in the image of Jesus, yeah, it's scary. It is. Because for some of us, that security, that safety, that happiness, it feels good. But when you know that none of that stuff is going to bring you salvation, and when you know that the one who brought you salvation is offering you a better way, and when you know that that stuff that you're clinging to so tightly could be a blessing for so many that you may not even know, Generosity becomes an easier stance to take. I'll, I'll close with a, a, a simple, sweet, silly story, but I think it fits. One of my favorite images of generosity came from my little girl, Andy, when she was, what, maybe one. She has this little pig named Pua, right? It's the Pua from Moana, right? Uh, it's the stuffed pig. She carries this thing everywhere. It's probably filthy. We do wash it, I think, occasionally, uh, but it's got to be still filthy. Um, that girl loves to wipe her snot all over it. Anyways, it's her favorite thing in the world. She can't sleep without him. She takes him everywhere. When she was like one, I would notice every morning she would walk out and she'd be holding Pua. You know, just like every kid has their thing, right? Their blanket, their Pua, whatever. She'd be holding Pua. But then she'd see our dog, Annie. I know, Andy and Annie, we weren't thinking. She sees our dog and she would, her eyes would light up, and she'd just drop Pua and run over and give Annie a huge hug. And I think it's because there's a reason why Jesus calls his disciples children and why he asks us to be children in our faith and why maybe a more childlike faith could lead us to a position of generosity. Because in that moment, my daughter didn't see her need for Pua. She, seen my, she saw my dog's need for a hug, and that's what mattered. That's what mattered. In return, she got a big face full of fluff. She probably got dog hair on her for days. But in that moment, her need for Pua didn't matter nearly as much as my dog's need for a hug. It's a silly story. It's a simple story. But I wonder if we could adopt a childlike faith of generosity that said, my need for my stuff is not as important as the world's need for me to be generous. What if we walked through our lives with hands held open, ready to pour ourselves out like a savior at this altar? Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for your words for us this morning. We give you thanks for the boldness of a rich young man who asked a really important question and got a really difficult answer. God, we ask that, that you would raise up this story, not so that we could look at the rich young man and say, gosh, I'm so glad I'm not like that, but instead to empathize and go, man, how often am I like that? How often do I walk away sad from Jesus because I'm not willing to take the difficult step towards generosity, towards self-sacrifice? God, loosen our hands this morning. Whether we're clutching our wallets or our bank accounts or our stuff at our house or whatever power and influence that we think we have over this universe, God, allow us to release our hands to remember that everything we have, all that we are is yours. 
that these resources are not our own. They are for the betterment of your kingdom and your people. Allow us to drop the stuff and instead embrace our neighbors. Allow us to walk with the childlike faith of wonder and gratitude. Inspire us to generosity. All this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ.